Last week we began a series that will be just a five-week series and we'll head toward Christmas, believe it or not, right around the corner. But we, we began a series on the church and I think it's important from time to time both to remind us, um, keep us going down the right path, so to speak, that we revisit what God has to say about how the church, both his overall church, including all Christians, and then the local body of Christ, how we should, should operate. And so that, that's really the goal and the point of, of this series. I did mention to you last week with, with sincerity and truth that I am concerned for the church in America, and not just some church out there, but all of the churches in America. I really believe that we have We've seen and lost uh, ground uh, that we probably never anticipated losing. If you've been around the church for a long period of time, you probably remember a time when, when it seemed as if everybody in the community sort of went to church. And you drove by a particular church, and it seemed as if whatever denomination it might be, that, that it had a pretty strong ministry, that the, the church seemed to be a little bit full. And, of course, we know nowadays that's not the case. Even here in Murray and Callaway County, it's not the case. We, we don't have very many people in our county even attending church. It's estimated that at least two-thirds of the people on a given Sunday morning don't attend church. And certainly we know we can look around here and seem pretty full some days, and then we look around, maybe you've driven and been traveling on a Sunday, and you drive through a neighborhood or pass by a, a church, and you see an empty parking lot or folks out doing whatever it is that they, that they do, but certainly lost ground. We can't deny it. It's true. We, we've got a couple of options that I, I want to challenge us with as we move through this series that, that I believe can help us to recapture the mission that God has given the church. The first thing, as I mentioned last week, we've got to own the problem. We, we have contributed to the problem. Our lackadaisical faith, many times as Christians, has, has infiltrated the church and the culture to the point where folks don't see the body of Christ as necessary. And I'm not just talking about church attendance. I'm talking about faith in the Lord in a deep way. And certainly we must own the problem. And then we also, and, and as we do that, we don't want to linger there in the sense of making ourselves feel guilty and beating us down. We've got to return to God's design. How does God describe the church? Last week we looked at how God describes the church as the body of Christ. And let me quiz you real quick. There were two things that we need as the body of Christ. All right, so pop quiz. And anybody who gets this right, um, I'll, I'll give you a handshake as you walk out the door. All right, make you feel really special. Two things that we looked at last week. As the body of Christ, we need what? Does anybody remember? Unity and humility. Absolutely. Those two things, as a result of being the body of Christ, must be present and that's how God has designed it. Now, each week, what you'll notice is there will be two more things that we'll layer in, that we'll add in for each description. So this week, we're talking about the family of God. Now, certainly you may be familiar with that kind of term in talking about Christians or churches, your church family, or the family that you have there in the church, or whatever it may be. And I mentioned that earlier. But if you think about family in general terms, that probably, for, for many of us, brings an immediate uh, mental response and possibly even an emotional response. There are things you think of when you think of the word family. There are things maybe you feel when you hear the word family, good, bad, and otherwise. Family is certainly important to us in, in these days. 
What I've noticed in this particular church here at Elm Grove, as I've served here for three years, is that family is a big deal to many of you here. It is a big deal in a very good way. Family is very, very important. I've seen through doing now probably a dozen or so funerals from folks connected to this church that families come together during those times, and oftentimes even families that may have in the past experienced some ups and downs, so to speak, they, they come together and all join on the importance of family during that time. I've seen in here many, many families who are represented by several generations. Let me, let me ask this for just a second. How many of you have uh, three or more generations represented at church today? Anybody like that today? Anybody here? Okay, we've got, we've got several. It, it, does anybody have, anybody have four, more, more than that? Okay. I would imagine if we, if we gathered everybody together on a given Sunday who attends our church, not only will we not know where to put everybody, but we would have probably in some families at least four generations represented. Family is important here. And, and, and I want you to know that as, as the pastor of the church here, I, I love that. I appreciate that family is something that's very important, that families plant themselves here and they believe it's a place not only for them but for the entire family. One of the things I miss about not living in my hometown of Louisville is my family, obviously. Miss, miss seeing them. I miss being around them. I, I have three living grandparents, and uh, thankfully uh, the Lord has blessed me with that for this long. And, and I, I rarely get to see them. I talk to them occasionally, but rarely get to see them. And family is something that's, that's missed, just the casual things. I'm not even talking about family reunions, because I'm not sure if anybody really misses family reunions, you know. But at the same time, Except for maybe the food. But at the same time, you know, you, if you're away from it, if you've lost family members, there are things that, that you miss. If you think about how your family has shaped you, you are largely the person you are today because of the family that you grew up in. You may be a person who's 70, 80, 90 years old, but you could trace things back to the person you are today, to the home that you were raised in. Some of you today say, you know, my personality is a lot like my dad. My personality is a lot like my mom. Or, uh, you, you know, we, we've seen how we are shaped through, through things that were good in the family, things that were not so good. Maybe your family has enjoyed a great reputation for a long period of time, and you got, a, got away with being a knucklehead for a long time because your family had a good name. You with me? Don't, don't elbow anybody. But maybe your family, though, had a poor reputation, and you struggled for years to overcome that. Maybe somebody in your family just did lots of things that you know you're just not proud of. And you say, I'm still trying to overcome that. Because when somebody hears your last name, you say, oh, I know about you. Certainly, some of us have famous or important relatives. Uh, when I arrived on the campus at Murray State University in the fall of 1985, I was related to the president of the university. Kern Alexander is my uncle's brother-in-law. We're not related by blood in any way, but I claimed him telling you, I claimed him, absolutely claimed him. Now, I don't know where some of you stand. Some of you worked at the university maybe during that time. I ain't worried about any of that stuff, but I got to go to the president's house and eat there at Oakland. Man, that was something. I'd take my roommates over there, and I'd just kind of walk through the door, and, you know, I called him Kern. <laughs> Wasn't Dr. Alexander. He was Kern. They were so impressed. You know, isn't it, isn't it interesting to have a, a family member in power or who's famous some of you probably have a distant relation to somebody who's famous, and any chance you get to drop that name, you throw it in there, you know? The family certainly is important. God has originated and designed the family to 
to bring about an identity for each person. Your reputation, what you do for a living may even be, in fact, based upon the home you grew up in. The opportunities for education and and so on that you've been given are probably the result of your family. Where you live may be a direct result of your family. Many of you have had families who lived here and have grown up and you've stayed here. And as a result, it's obviously your family at work there. The emotions you experience, your personality, your appearance. You say, I look just like my dad. And I don't like that, you know. Or, or I look just like my mom. Or my brother and I look alike. You, your appearance even is shaped by your family. You think about uh, families that, that are in existence. I would imagine that some of you grew up in a home where you had tremendous responsibility. And you look at today's generation and you say, you know what I had to do? I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning after going to bed at 4. And I had to get up. And not only did I walk to school both ways, uphill in the snow with no shoes. But in the meantime, along the way, I had to milk all the cows, slop the pigs, and take care of all. As I was walking to school, uphill both ways with no shoes on in the snow. Now, I realize I'm a little bit hyperbole there, but you look at today's generation and you think family responsibility just ain't quite what it used to be. Family responsibility in days gone by involved loyalty, involved protecting the family's reputation, ensuring the good name of the family, trying to avoid anything that might bring shame and dishonor to your parents. Today, in today's world, and, and we see this in society, and I don't mean to make blanket statements, but I think it's fair that in many families, that's not as big a deal as it once was. Responsibilities for young people now is more of a joke than it is legitimate. The bar is set way too low quite often. Family name means less today in many families than it ever did before, and, and the responsibility to the family today has really been replaced by responsibility to the individual, my rights, who I am instead of what's good for the whole. Family has always been important, not just for us now, but if we look back, and I did a little study this week as I was thinking about the family of God on the, the history of the Jewish family. The lineage for a Jewish person was of extreme importance. If you know anything about the New Testament whatsoever, and you know in, in the book of Matthew where the New Testament begins... And then in Luke, where the, the birth of Jesus is again recorded, there are two things there that might at first seem a little bit odd. In each of those books, there's a genealogy. There's a section of begats, as the King James likes to put it. There's a, he fathered this person, and he fathered this person, and so on, and then you get to Jesus. Or you start with Jesus, and you trace it all the way back to God. But, but all those gospel writers are doing is legitimizing who Jesus was based upon his lineage. It was extremely important. A person's lineage gave him or her a, a specific location, a connection to the vast kinship that was afforded to the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. All those who were descendants of Abraham wanted to connect themselves back to Abraham. It was extremely important. Matthew chapter 1, as I said, it presents Jesus as an heir to the throne of David, connects him to David. Luke chapter 3 connects him back all the way to God. He has universal rule, not just over Israel. In ancient times, people were known by their father's name. We see this in Matthew 16, John 1, John 21. You see in Matthew 16, Jesus, talking with Peter, calls him Simon, son of Jonah. Oftentimes, those in ancient cultures were identified by their father's name, which meant that whatever reputation their father had, 
carried on to them. Good or bad, the reputation literally preceded them. There was ascribed honor and dishonor because of who your father was. Many times children would not be able to overcome the dishonor of a father. And many times children were advanced because of the honor given to their father. There was also tremendous responsibility based upon belonging to the Jewish nation and family. One of those responsibilities that's very interesting was to hide shame. This was very interesting when I came across this this week. If you think about Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph was the young man whose brothers hated him. They were jealous of him because his father preferred him over the other brothers. And as a result, they attacked him, they threw him into a pit, they sold him into slavery. Do you know what Joseph said the whole time that was happening? Nothing. Not a single word is recorded in Scripture that he was saying during that time. He could have claimed to be a son of Jacob and and maybe gotten himself out of being sold into slavery because of his identity with his father. But perhaps to cover the shame of his brothers, to not call out a family issue in public, he said nothing. We get a more specific example of this with Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus in the New Testament. When he found out that Mary was pregnant before they had gotten married, what did he do? The Bible says in various translations that he wanted to dismiss her quietly. Being a righteous man, it said. He was going to hide the shame of someone that he deeply cared for because he didn't feel that that should be broadcast to everybody. In ancient times, airing some sort of family disagreement was both a disgrace and a dishonor. They were supposed to learn to not do that and to to not be a detriment to the family well-being and standing. Hiding shame was part of the responsibility. Cooperation, certainly. Sibling rivalry today is something we kind of laugh about. And we talk about the jokes between that, but sibling rivalry back then was... A major insult to the family. They were to cooperate. There was also sharing and harmony, being of, of one mind and mutual love and sharing a common faith and what, and what possessions they had, they were willing to share and so on. We see a tremendous amount of importance in the ancient family. And we certainly know that back then and today, family was very important. It still is. The Bible has a lot to say about the family as the natural family between husband and wife and children. And that's the foundation of society, certainly the foundation of the church. We know that our society is making an attempt, obviously, to redefine what the family is. That's a sermon for another day, but but we get the idea that, that the family is kind of in flux. Now, what's interesting is when Jesus showed up on the scene, he, in a very real sense, also redefined the term family. Let me illustrate this with a couple of verses. If you got your Bible handy, let me let me get you to turn. We're going to we're going to get an overview shot today. Normally I like to camp out in one particular passage and walk through it and, and pick it apart. And, and today, to get the idea of what the entire New Testament says about the family of God, we can't really do that. So I, I want to get a satellite view of this. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 21, and we'll look at verses 34 to 37. Matthew chapter 10, here's Jesus showing up on the scene, speaking to the Jewish people who viewed their natural families as the epitome and the the pinnacle of all that they were about. He says, talking about those who are going to follow him, here will be the results. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will even rise up against their parents and have them put to death. 
Look at verse 34. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That happens anyway. And, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Do you see what Jesus is talking about here? He's not saying that this somehow is the most noble thing for families to hate each other. Don't misread what the Lord is saying. But what he's telling us is that when he showed up on the scene, family is a little different. Because there will be some who will follow him and some who will not. And it will cause some tension in the family. Maybe you've seen that. But Jesus all the while is saying, I'm redefining and giving you a new family, though I'm not canceling your natural family. What's also interesting, this was fascinating. In the first chapter of every letter that Paul wrote, all 13 of them in the New Testament, in the very first chapter of each one of those, there's family language. He uses the term brothers in Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. In the first chapter. Calling his Christian brothers and sisters by what they really are, brothers and sisters. He uses the term my child in the faith or my true child in 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. In every one of his letters, the first chapter, Paul uses this family language for Christians. There's something about it. There's something that the Lord wanted the people during that time to understand. That they were no longer related primarily by natural birth, but primarily by spiritual birth. That though their natural families were obviously important and vital to their lives, we know that, but their new family of faith was of even greater importance. And for many of them, they had to have their family of faith because they were thrown out of their natural families for following Jesus. Many of them had lost everything because of their choice to follow the Lord. And so Jesus is highlighting, look, you've got a new family of faith that you can count on. It was important for Jewish readers to understand this, as these were the folks who would be reading and listening to the Scripture. There was a new covenant one that didn't require somebody to become Jewish in order to be a part of. They needed to understand that, that they weren't the only ones who were in. That the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, would now be also in. That, that just being born as a descendant of Abraham was not what the Lord wanted, but faith in Jesus Christ. It was also important for Gentile readers, because they didn't have to become Jewish <laughs> to be circumcised in order to be believers in Jesus Christ. If you think about the implications of this family language and so on, as Jesus redefines it, as Paul reiterates it, I want to give you two things this morning that will break apart and then we'll be dismissed. That as the family of God, both as they did in ancient Israel and as we still do today, and as Jesus highlights for us in all the New Testament writers, we have identity and we have responsibility. We have identity, and we have responsibility. Now, this is the last thing you'll fill out on your bulletin, but there are a couple of boxes I mentioned last week. I'd love for you to, to begin to, to, to think and to write some things down this morning as the Lord impressed them on you. Write something down about the identity that believers have, the responsibility we have toward one another. We are the family of God, and as that, we have identity and we have responsibility. Flip over from Matthew, if you've still got your Bible open, to Galatians. 
Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Paul is talking to Jewish people about, about their, their following the law and so on and credit, trying to get that credited to them as, as earning God's favor and being righteous. And he's, he's shooting holes in all of that stuff. And he talks in Galatians chapter 3 about being the descendants of Abraham. And he says, that's not where it's at anymore. You have to understand that now with Jesus on the scene, there's a different kind of family And he says this in verse 26 of Galatians 3, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not through birth by Abraham, but through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Now pause there for just a second. Do you see the reversal? Jesus is saying, you are are sons of God. You are his children, not by birth, natural birth, but by spiritual birth. And if you have been born by faith in Jesus Christ, born of the Holy Spirit, he says, then you really are Abraham's children because he came to the Lord in faith as well. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now I say, chapter 4, verse 1, that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and stewards until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we, are, when we were children, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. But when the, when the completion of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent His Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He's talking about the family of God. How all who believe become members of the family of God. He says our identity first is based upon Jesus being the Son of God. Those who have put on Jesus then become members of His family. Jesus is, of course, the bridge between God and us, being both God and man and being a perfect man to bridge the gap and die for our sins. Only Jesus could do that. And only through Jesus can we receive our salvation and membership in the family of God. Our identity comes, through, comes to, in the family of God through adoption, he says, as sons. That's the only way. You're not born into it. Now, this would be great, and I think we've got a little problem with this uh, in our country today. Maybe you would agree. If you were to poll most people in America, most, the vast majority, would say they believe in God. Very few, a very small percentage would say they, they are a complete atheist, meaning they don't believe there's any God whatsoever. Very few. Now, there are certainly many, and they, they talk very loudly many times, but there are very few of them. Most people, the overwhelming majority, would say they believe in God. Most people would consider themselves Christians. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, Christian. I wonder, though, how many of them are fooled into believing what the Jewish people were fooled into believing, and that is that because of the family they were born into or where they were raised, that automatically makes them in. Jesus is telling the people in Matthew, Paul is telling the people here in Galatians, that it doesn't matter where or to what family or what descent you come from. 
you don't place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be the greatest American the world has ever known. You can be the greatest person the world has ever known. And apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you'll be a great American, a great person, who, to put it bluntly, dies and goes to hell. Now, I don't say that against America. I love America. I'm glad I was born here. Praise God that we have the freedom we do. I, I love it. And I'm not saying that about good people, but let's be honest. Don't we have a problem in our country with folks who assume that because they're born into a Christian nation, because they're good people, because maybe they attend church from time to time or they believe there is a God, they assume then that they are a child of God. And Jesus says, you might be born to Abraham, but if you don't come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're not a child of God. What's interesting is Paul goes on to say that, that there's only one line that's drawn between believers and unbelievers, between members of the family and non-members. And that is the line of faith in Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 28. There is no Jew or Greek. There's no racial lines in the family of God. I, I say this, and I hope you'll understand what I mean, <clears throat> because I, I, I am one. But I praise God that he's not seen fit just to save middle-class white Americans. That's who I am. But I praise God he's not seen fit just to save people like me. How boring would heaven be? Do you get a picture in your mind of what heaven will be? There are no racial lines in heaven. None. Not a single one. There's no prejudice in heaven whatsoever. Praise God he hasn't seen fit just to save people like me. But from every nation. Every tribe, every tongue, the Bible says, there will be people in heaven. Praise God for that. There's no racial line, none whatsoever. There's no Jew or Greek. He says there's no slave or free. There's no social line. You can be rich and still come to Jesus. You can be poor and still come to Jesus. You can be right in between and still come to Jesus. There's no, there's no social line. There's no social standing. You don't have to be a certain level in society to come to Jesus. Praise God for that. You don't have to be born into a certain family to come to Jesus. The family you're born in, let me tell you this, can't get you to heaven. And it can't keep you out. The line is through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says there's no male or female. There's no gender line. You look around today. <laughs> male and female. Sitting together. As we will all be one day in heaven. Now, I realize that, if I'm not mistaken, there used to be a time, even in this church, where the guys and the gals sat on opposite sides. Now, I don't know when that was, was originated or why it went away or whatever, but I kind of like the fact that we're all mixed up here today. I kind of like that. Some of you might want to return to the old days. I don't know, but I kind of like that, that part of it. No gender lines. You don't have to be a man to come to Jesus. You don't have to be a woman to come to Jesus. And guys, to say, let me, let me speak to the men, to say that you are, are in love with the Lord, that you absolutely love Him with your entire heart is not a female emotion. We're not talking about a romantic relationship. We're not talking about anything funny. Guys, it is absolutely the epitome of the way God has created men to love Jesus. It is the absolute epitome. And my prayer, I'll be honest with you, my prayer for this church is that many of the men who are waiting in the wings and sitting in the background would join me in stepping up to the plate, as difficult as that may be, and saying, we love the Lord with all of our hearts. 
And though we are thankful, absolutely thankful, I had a conversation about this just a few minutes ago, for all the women who serve and love the Lord in our church, we are not going to lag behind as men in that department. And we'll step up and we'll love the Lord with all of our hearts and we'll join those ladies who have been so faithful for so many years in serving the Lord here at Elm Grove. No gender line. I love how the Lord just breaks down all the lines. To keep anybody out, he says, no, 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 there's only one line. That's the line of faith in Jesus Christ. Our identity in Jesus Christ, our identity as people in the family of God, makes us, the Bible says, sons of God. Now, let me speak to the ladies. You may read that and say, well, hold on. (laughs) Um, I'm a woman. I can't really be a son. There are some translations of the Bible that want to water that down. They want to change it from sons to just children. The reason that the language of sons is used is because they were heirs to all the father had. The women during that day got nothing. They were a piece of property. You didn't want to be a woman during that time period because you had nothing, no rights, nothing. And I don't know about you, I can't speak for all women, but if I were a woman and read the sonship language in the New Testament, I would praise God that he included sons Because that's who you are with access to all that God offers. You have equal access and inheritance from the Lord, not as a woman during that time who had nothing, but as a figurative son of God who is entitled to it all. It raises women up to a level they had never been before, on equal ground spiritually. And I hope that makes sense to you. And you read that and maybe get confused. Maybe that helps to clear it up just a little bit. Our identity in the family of God is based upon who Jesus has made us. Now, if you have an identification card handy or a driver's license, take it out for just a second. Pass it down, and we're going to steal all your identities. No, I'm just joking. Everybody looked up like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Take out your driver's license if you got it. If you you got access to it, take it out, all right? Play along for just a second. I want you to look at a few things. I'm not going, we're not going to take up another offering. See, I'm reaching for my wallet again. Now, hold on. All right? But take out your driver's license. If you got that handy, I just want you to look at it. Some of it. Now, don't be frightened by what you see there, okay? Now, it wouldn't it be interesting if you had all the driver's license you ever had and be able to trace the progression. See, my hair went from about here all the way back. Boy, it was nice at one point. But if you look on your driver's license or on your identification card, you're going to see several things. What it's going to tell you about yourself is where you live, or at least your official place of residence. There's a little number, a license number. That's your identification. You ever had to write that down, your social security number, driver's license number? That's how you're identified. It's got an expiration date. That means if you don't get it renewed by then, You can still drive, but you're going to get in some major trouble if anybody finds out. You know what I mean? I won't ask you if you've ever done that. It's got your birth date. Physically, when were you born? Mine says 6-26-1977. It's got some other things down at the bottom. Tells me that I'm a male. That I'm 5'8". That's being generous. That my eyes are brown and that I've got one restriction on my driver's license. I either got to wear contacts or glasses while I drive. It tells me when it was issued, October 2nd, 2008. It tells me a lot of things. Some of you may even have that you're an organ donor, and it tells you that. But you look at that picture. 
<laughs> Some of you are laughing. You look at that picture on your driver's license, and you tell me if all that stuff really tells who you are. There's not a single thing on there that can truly identify who you are. And I don't know what comes to mind when you look at the picture of yourself. You may look at that picture and you may despise what you see. Because you look past the picture. I'm not talking about external appearance. I'm talking about what's on the inside. You may look at that and say, I can't stand the person I'm looking at. You may look at that and say, you know what, I'm not doing too bad. Not too shabby if I don't, don't, don't if I say it myself. But let me tell you this, the person on that driver's license, the things that are described there don't really tell the full story. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, he threw the driver's license out the window and he said, you know what, your age cannot define you. Where you live, where you're born, when you're born cannot define you. Your height, the eye color that you have, what you looked like in 2008 can't define you. It goes a whole lot deeper than that. And as a member of the family of God, you have been issued a new identification card. This stuff does not define you. Your identity with Jesus Christ brings a new identity, a radical break from whoever you might see on that driver's license. No longer are you defined by the external no longer are you defined by your natural birth, which, by the way, the only real inheritance you get from natural birth is death. <laughs> the inheritance you receive through spiritual birth is eternal life. You have a new identity. That ID card Jesus has given those who believe in Him is not issued just because you're here today or because you live in America or because you do nice things for people. You're a good person. Or because you believe there might be a God, the way you receive that new identification is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I remember my time in college, and there were several guys who had a fake ID. Now, again, I'm not going to ask you which one of you tried this back in the day, okay? But there were several guys who had a fake ID, and, you know, they would go into a place and they would kind of cover up the picture like this. And they just throw it out there and try to get it back real quick, you know. They tried to use a fake ID to gain access to places that would otherwise deny them access. I'm afraid that in our society and probably in many churches, many people try the same thing with the Lord. They try a fake ID. And what they write on it is, I'm a good person. I, I, I go to church. I do nice things for people. Surely to goodness, if anybody deserves a place in heaven, it's, it's me. And we, we throw that fake ID out there for the Lord and we say, here it is. This, is, this is what I'm counting on. This ought to gain me access. Matthew 25 illustrates, and we won't read it, that there are many people who will present to the Lord on the day of judgment a fake ID. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's a fake ID. I don't know where you stand this morning. I don't know if you've been in church your whole life and the whole time you've been holding up a fake ID. I have no idea. But I guarantee you this hits home for somebody. For somebody here, you need to trade in the fake ID for the real one issued by Jesus Christ through faith in Him as the Son of God, the Savior.
for your sins. An ID issued by us only includes good works, and that won't work with the Lord. The only way we can gain access to the Lord Jesus Christ, both now and for all eternity, is by having His ID received by His grace through faith in Him. We have a new identity in Jesus Christ. And finally, we have a new, a new responsibility. It's interesting that in the family of God, we have many of the same responsibilities that the ancient Jewish family would have had to one another. I hope and I pray that Elm Grove Baptist Church will be the type of family of God that I believe it always has been, and as we move toward the future, that we will continue to exhibit our responsibility to one another in compassion. Jesus said in John chapter 13, I give you a new commandment. As I have loved you, you love one another. They will know you're my disciples if you love one another. That we'll practically demonstrate that love. That we'll treat others with dignity. Young, old, anywhere in between. Whether they contribute or not. That we'll hide the shame of others just as Christ has hidden our shame in the cross. What a shame it is to see churches. Praise God we're not there right now. But take heed, the Bible says, lest you also fall. What a shame it is to see churches that hate each other. I was commenting earlier with a woman in our church about a particular church in Louisville that they just plain don't like each other. <laughs> what a shame. What a, what a rotten testimony to the graciousness of the Lord. In the family of God, there should be cooperation and reconciliation and forgiveness and love and generosity toward one another. That's our responsibility. Those aren't good suggestions. That's a responsibility from Scripture. The ethics of the family of God really are summed up in Romans chapter 12, and I want to close with this. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Here's the epitome of ethics within the family of God for Christians. Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. What a powerful scripture. As we think about this household of faith, this family of God, we have, praise God, a brand new identity. And we have the challenge from God and our responsibility toward one another. As we close this morning, perhaps you'd like to join 
the family of God. I've reiterated it over and over and over that the family of God is only for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've carried around that fake ID and today you say, I'm laying that down. <laughs> I want to be sure that I know Jesus Christ. I'd love to speak with you about it. Maybe you would want to join this particular family of God. As I mentioned, discovery classes next week. Maybe you've got questions. What does it mean? Just attend that and I'll try to help you understand. Or maybe you'd like to talk in just a moment. Maybe you'd begin to live the new identity that Jesus has given you. And you use that as a trump card when the lies of Satan come, when discouragement comes. You simply declare based upon the scripture, I am made brand new. All that old stuff doesn't define me anymore. I'm a child of God. Or maybe today you'd take the responsibility to go and tell somebody after the service that you love them. You're in the family of God. You may not be related to them, may not have spoken to them in years. I don't know. Maybe they sit on this side and you sit over here and you just don't see them much. I don't know. Maybe you'd find somebody today in the family of God and say, you know what, I love you and I appreciate you. Thank you for what you've done. Just thank you for being you. <laughs> maybe you'd tell somebody. Or maybe today you'd go to somebody and you'd just pray for them. And you say, you know what, I know times have been tough on you. I just want to pray for you. Maybe by the end of the service you'd go and do that. Or maybe today you'd be reconciled with somebody. Or you begin that process. No matter what, I pray that as a family of God here at Elm Grove, that we would be a home for the homeless. That we would tell people about the Father to the fatherless. That we would be a family for those who are spiritual orphans. That we would be a safe house for those who have been abused. That we'd be a rest stop for those who need a break. As a family of God, those are my prayers. So let's be thankful today for our identity in the family of God, and, and let's take the charge from the Lord to be responsible toward one another. We're going to close the service in a little different way. Danny, Randy, why don't you guys come on up. We're going to, we're going to close the service just a little different. Since, since we are the family of God, I'm going to make you feel real awkward this morning. How about that? You ever have awkward times in your family? Things you just wish mom and dad hadn't made you do? I'd like for you to stand with me, okay? <clears throat> And I'd like for you, as the family of God represented here at Elm Grove, whether you've been a long-time member or this is your first time here, I'd like for you to join a hand next to you. Reach across the aisle, if need be. Let's join a hand. And we're going to sing a song called The Family of God to close our time this morning. So everybody grab a hand as best you can, all right? And Danny and Randy are going to lead us. So I guess we'll probably sing it through a couple of times. All right, how about that? And, uh, and let's celebrate our identity in the family of God, and let's be challenged to fulfill our responsibility toward one another. Let's sing the family of God.